So retreats, a place of taking stock. In many ways, because the body is sitting still and we are not achieving things, we're not defining ourselves in terms of doing and efficiency, in terms of performance. This is a commitment we make when we go and retreat. there's usually a dimension of things catching up with us. So it is important to understand some of this beforehand. When we go on a retreat, when you do particular contemplative practices, some of what we do and some of what we experience is directly due to what we do in that moment. Yeah? So some of your collectedness or distractedness of mind may have something to do what objects of meditation you choose, how you go go about proceeding with that object of meditation, what you do when you find out that you're not meditating with that object. So there's a result that comes about through immediate doing of things with your attention in that moment. But there's also a dimension that things catch up with us because we stop moving so fast because in many ways we stop displacing things by the sheer speed of our lives, things are catching up with us. So some of the stuff you will experience will not just be the direct result of what you're doing right here and now, it will also be the result of how you live your life. In fact, uh, most of us are surprised that what's happening in meditation is less about our particular choice of meditation method and technique than about what echoes back from the way we live our lives. So be prepared for some of this and be prepared to meet whatever emerges from your mind um, as respectfully and as compassionately and as soberly as possible. Don't make meditation into yet another thing. You're not doing enough of, you're not doing well and you're taking as a foundation to be hard on you. So consider that the mind is complex. The workings of karma are complex. Actions have consequences. Some of them have instant consequences. You walk walk around at night without switching on the light. The instant karma of this may be you just miss the door and you bump into the wall. That's a fairly straightforward causal relationship. Slightly inflated feeling, you know where things are at night, you don't need to bother switching on the light and, you know, Mother Nature teaches you, no, this isn't the case, the door was not where you thought it was and there is a wall now and that teaches you the lesson. Stub your toes or bump your nose or something like that. That's a fairly straightforward, immediate, instant karma kind of relationship or more precisely instant vipaka. Since karma is what you do and vipaka is what you get. It's necessary to distinguish the two, otherwise you make a mess of this teaching. But sometimes vipaka is not so immediate. The vipaka of your sugar consumption and your dental bill are not necessarily so straightforward. You know, they're a lot less instant. There may be some months in between. Or the effect may be cumulative, maybe some years even. So... To establish the causal connection between a consumption habit and the dental bill is more difficult to see than the connection between not switching on the light and having a stopped toe shortly after. So sometimes what happens in our meditation is 
not just the result of a teaching or a place or of having slept well or badly the, the night before, but it is due to habits that have been cumula- accumulating in our lives. So be prepared that some of this will show up, both virtues, yeah? often people are highly willing to identify their flaws and their hang-ups and the things they're not good at, or they feel they're not good at. And then you, you know, I do that sometimes. I ask people who are quite willing to tell me what's wrong in their life or in their practice. Or so. I say, what are, you, what are you good at? And they go all squeamish and kind of red, <laughs> rosy cheeked and say, oh, I love animals and I kind of helped the old lady with the garbage two days ago. And, you know, this kind of quite overt unease to actually acknowledge some of the strength or the virtues they bring to this practice. It's true, there is greed, hatred and delusion, but we're not just greed, hatred and delusion. It is. I'm telling you this now. I, it's taken me a good 15 years to figure this one out when I started practicing. I just thought it was solid, chock-a-block, delusion, and if not deluded, then hateful, and if not hateful, then as much as I could, snatches of greed, you know, here and there. But it's not the case. You know, we all bring to this practice an immense amount of talent and virtue, dedication, heartfulness. And you may not think of these things in your term, in those terms. But often it's easy for me to see that in you. It's easy for me to see people who have tremendous goodness or tremendous dedication or willingness to be questioned in areas of their lives. And sometimes I would wish people would be less willing to just identify themselves with their hang-ups or their perceived hang-ups or shortcomings and more willing and more capable to acknowledge the goodness that is at work in them, the ground they stand on, the skills and experience and virtues they bring along. I found that very different in Asia. Um, you know, this is, my Swiss conditioning doesn't allow me to talk about money. Yeah. So this is basically not what you do there. Uh, this is very different in Thailand, you know. People go to the monastery and you meet them on the way out when they're going home and they say, we have been very generous today. And something in me goes, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, don't say that, you spoil the effect, you know. Or, or we've been so and so much generous and then comes a figure, yeah. And there's something in you kind of shrivels up and you realize, oh, obviously these people, they, they, they feel good about what they're doing and they feel no shame about feeling good about this. Yeah? Which you know, threw some light on my particular conditioning, where you you do things, it's okay to do good things, yeah, there's nothing really objectionable about this, but <laughs> definitely don't let anybody know, yeah, and certainly don't put a figure on the size of your generosity, just no way you're going to do that, you know, you can't, you know, keep your head, head up if you're doing that. And we realize, okay, this is one type of conditioning, there's obviously people who feel no shame to acknowledge the goodness of their own doing, and to acknowledge even, you know, <laughs> the size of their magnanimity, which uh, made me smile in some way. And if Anapanasati teaching encourages to gladden our mind as one of the 16 steps of mind cultivation, Apipamodanang yeah, Chittang, uh, to gladden one's mind, then this is a standard recommendation that we recollect the goodness of our own doings as a way to make the mind brighter. 
And as many of you will know, there is a sequence that begins with an acknowledgement of suffering, a transformation of one's experience and one's uh, inspiration into faith, into the confidence that that suffering can be given up, and the fallout of that faith, a faith that doesn't need any beliefs anymore, by the way, is joy, pamoja. And joy gives rise to well-being, both physical and mental well-being, an ease. And out of that ease grows samadhi, grows stillness or calm of mind, grows the unification. And out of that unification grows a deepening of understanding. And out of that deepening of understanding grows a transformation of the heart. And out of that transformation comes release. So there is a clear conditional pattern that entails degrees of a trusting attitude, um, a willingness to acknowledge and bear suffering and rather than shrivel away from it in an attempt to def defend and contract away from the experience of discomfort and suffering, but an opening into, a releasing into, a trusting engagement with. And out of this comes a type of quality that is the foundation for stillness of mind. It's a, it's a, a kind of a power that is Chinese in, Chinese iconography would consider this the, the power of water. Yeah? It's the power of the pond. It's the stillness, but it has depth. It doesn't have made many waves, but the power that is felt there is one of depth. Yeah? And it's meeting, meeting suffering with that kind of depth that gives rise to the subsequent stages of happiness, relaxation of body, uh, joy in the mind, uh, gradually plateauing into sukha and giving rise then to deeper understandings and insights and transformation. There's a sequence that comes up in a number of texts. I hope to fish that out for an evening talk uh, in the next two weeks um, that outlines this and is worth a little more detail than I have breath for right now. But it is important to understand that creating ease is the beginning of creating stillness for your own mind. And that means trusting. It means being able to find contact to one's resources, a ground that carries, a body that holds up, a breath that comes, a heart that doesn't miss a beat, a mind that can be both sensitive and contained without going mad or crazy or lost. Just acknowledging the goodness that is happening right now. All the possible miseries you, you could have and you don't have right now. Thich Nhat Hanh's famous, the toothache that you don't feel right now. How grateful, how willing are you to be grateful for all the toothaches you could have and you don't have right now. If you don't have a toothache, you just think it's normal not to have toothache until you have one and then you know. You have no, you have no, there's no contractual right here. To, to not have pain. And yet, if you don't have pain, which is a state you're craving for if you do have pain, you tend to forget that you don't have pain. You tend to forget of all the good stuff that is happening. So, I believe the fact that you're here tells me that much good is happening in your life. This is a privileged moment, a privileged corner. Not because I'm so 
overwhelmingly precious or unique, but because you obviously have made time, you obviously have the means to come here, you have made sacrifices, you have uh, access to a place that is quite unique. I travel a bit and uh, I know no other place that comes close to this one. So the fact that you have arrived here, made this possible in your own lives, and I'm sure that took some organizing, um, means that you have virtues. It means that you have made these virtues possible. You've given them weight. Uh, that means you, you already have a number of good qualities in your life going, and you're willing to follow through and make the sacrifices to make it possible to be here. You're missing a lot, you know, you missed Wembley yesterday. Uh, you're missing boating trips. You're missing all kinds of things. Just while being here, sacrificing all this stuff for being here. Um, and this is, this is a virtue that allows you to sacrifice things, to make things more important than other things. Is a, this is a power. This means something in your mind is capable of doing this and willing to do this. So connecting with one's own virtues, one's own resources, one's own goodness is a crucial step in creating ease for the mind. Not just fixating and identifying with the things that are not yet achieved, that need to be done, need to be ticked off, that are still painfully lacking in your biography, the gap in your CV, you know, the unpublished book, missed yet another conference without me as a keynote speaker kind of thing. Yeah? You know, all this stuff unticked is often so much the focus of our identification habit. Now identification, as you know, is, is, is giving a lot of bad press in Buddhist teaching. But if we have to identify, let us identify with our virtues. Let us identify with the goodness. Let us identify with the stuff we have learned, the stuff we're capable. Yes, I can love. Yes, I can forgive. Yes, I have strength. Yes, I can take blows. I'm not a sissy in this. I can really, I can really be sober. I have strength. I have, I have the power to surrender. I don't need to prove my f independence by fiercely pushing aside any possible help. I can feel my independence and at the same time surrender myself. Surrender this weight to the ground, for example. Surrender myself to a schedule that's on the wall. Surrender to a teaching that I don't know whether it's going to work. You know, this is a strength. This is a virtue. This is a power. So do recall some of the stuff that has brought you here some of your own virtues. These are your resources. These are something to be glad about. And that gladness is probably more useful as a foundation for happiness and for strength and unification, samadhi of your mind, than is your willpower. You will need willpower. I'm not down on willpower. But it's not willpower that makes your mind go still. It's ease that makes your mind go still. It's your willingness to find ease where there is not perfection, to find ease in what is not necessarily comfortable. That is a skill. It's, 
It's straightforward when you do yoga practice, find comfort in discomfort is a standard procedure there. You, know, you go to the place where you meet the resistance and then you try to make the space you have there a little bigger. And you find non-reactiveness with the resistance. Just go as far as it goes and breathe into it. And that's what we do when we meditate, very much that. We don't demand perfection. We find within the given conditions, and they are about as good as it gets, if you want to meditate, um, you find within the given conditions the greatest possible ease for your mind, the greatest possible ground for non-reactiveness. And then you allow your mind to settle on the breath, on sensations of the body, and you deepen into this. You have no guarantees. The route isn't always the same. The speed isn't always the same. But you have learned to trust that process, however long it takes, to trust the process that takes you from complexity to simplicity, that takes you from dissipation to unification, that takes you from having to do many things to an easefulness in doing just the thing you're preoccupied with right now. Yeah. So, I'll just do this. Yeah. I know that some of this will be repet re repetitious to people who uh, have been here for a while. I believe there's just enough variance and enough value in this for you to still be here at 8.30 in the morning. So I'd like us to keep meeting at 8.30, all of us. Yeah. Uh, also, it seems important to acknowledge each other's presence. We, we feel alone enough in our practice. You know, there's these individual cushions and mats. And, uh, meeting one's own mind uh, often entails that it, this feels somewhat personal and somewhat lonely in the, the personality terms in which we uh, experience ourselves. And it helps just to see the quiet presence of others uh, engaged in a work that resembles ours. Um, while we walk our separate paths together, um, the more you walk on that path, you realize to see, you, you begin to realize that 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 sep these separate paths are actually on a, on another scale, one big one big track going into one direction. And we can help each other just by being visible, by being present, by being quietly supportive of each other. So I suggest we do come back at 8.30 here and uh, for the few group meetings I have for both of you. And those of you who have arrived freshly yesterday, please attend to the two more group meetings I have scheduled in the later morning with the practice leader.
Good. Uh, please go into walking and standing practice. I'd like to make an offer, and that is to look at your postures. So if you wish me to look at your posture, please stay behind right now, and I come round, have a quick look what you're doing, and maybe make some suggestions. Um, this is particularly for the folks who have arrived recently. I'm happy to look at some of the older folks as well, but uh, it's pretty... For those of you who have arrived just uh, a day ago, this is probably useful. So um, practice well. Thank you. <laughs> 